I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your... I don't even know what to call it now. We did an episode on how there is no social media that really works anymore. You're something or other feed. And on the evening, or on the evening news, has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel, The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel, Brotherless Snape. Hey, uh, I hear that uh, Beyonce played in Minneapolis. Did you go? Well, aren't you hip? Um, no, I did not go, but a couple of my pals did. And the city council declared Thursday Bay Day in honor of Beyonce and to celebrate black girls and women here in Minneapolis. Um, did you go to the Taylor Swift concert in Kansas City? I saw a tremendous amount of Instagram posts of people who did go to the Taylor Swift concert. I was in Alaska, so but otherwise I you would have been there. You, and, you know, look, you would have been there. I gotta right? admit, I'm not. If you've been in town, of course, of course. No, I, the last time I'm gonna say we're talking, we're talking about concerts this week. The last time I went to a rock concert, I do go, go to jazz shows, like he says very snootily, uh, was like to see Pink Floyd play in Veterans Coliseum when I was in college. I caught a cold. I got half stoned. It wasn't fun. I was sick for a week. And I was like, that's the end for me on concerts. Wow. Well, on this, um, our Old People Talk Concerts episode, um, <laughs> no. Um, well, so like in all seriousness, the young people these days, they like the concerts. They broke Ticketmaster. I know. My son just went and saw a concert. He went and saw uh, Backseat Lovers, whose name I had to look up. But <laughs> And yes, it's a huge deal. I mean, you know. Taylor Swift busted Ticketmaster. That concert that was in Kansas City was a huge deal. Um, you know, it's not just ticket buying that's getting more eventful. The concerts themselves are getting are really intense. Yeah, you know, just last week and I was reading about this and, and saw this in my Instagram feed. Uh, the R&B artist Monica jumping jumping off stage in Detroit to stop a man in the crowd um, who was hitting a woman. Then earlier this summer, a fan threw a cell phone at BB Rex so she needed stitches. There's a lot of fan artist interaction these days, and some of it is like beautiful community building, people returning to performances as concern about COVID has eased somewhat. But there are also these instances of violence. 
So what are what do we think of this, what we're going to call, for the purposes of this episode, the new summer of love or hate? I don't know, but I do know that we have the best guest here to discuss what's going on in constant culture in the U.S. today. Donnie Walton's debut novel, The Final Revival of Opal and Nev, so good, won the Aspen Words Literary Prize and was long-listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction. She was an editor at Essence Magazine and Entertainment Weekly and received an MFA from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Her work has appeared in The Oxford American, Bon Appetit, NPR, Lit Hub, and Black Ballad. Originally from Jacksonville, Florida, she currently lives in Brooklyn. Donnie, welcome to the show. Ah, thanks so much, y'all, for having me. It's great to be here. It's nice to have you from uh, steamy Brooklyn, as I hear on the news reports. <laughs> Although, yes. I don't know, how, it's 99 degrees in Kansas City. Can you compete with that? I don't think I can beat that today. Okay. But, you know, it's uh, very, very humid. And Fewer open spaces are just battling with, You feel the heat more. Yeah. You do, and we're sort of battling most of us with these window units, which are completely insufficient, but... That is bizarre and inhuman. <laughs> um, all right. Yes. Donnie, we were theorizing that concerts are more popular than ever. They do seem to be, and Live Nation stock is up 60%, and demand for Taylor Swift tickets crashed Ticketmaster earlier this year. Maybe it is the weather. I don't know. You've written about music as a journalist and a novelist. Why is this happening? Why are we having this thunderous reception for concerts this summer? Yeah, well, I think it ties in with a couple different things. One of them is the reason I think that my novel seemed to resonate when it came out in 2021. You know, at that point, we've been in the pandemic for a full year and people really missed communal experiences, you know, concerts. Um, and so the novel tapped into that yearning, but I think it's more than that because it hasn't been that theater is thriving or that movies outside of Barbie and Oppenheimer are doing like huge numbers. I think there's something unique about music and the music that you love and that you identify with and that you see yourself in and the feeling that you have when you hear live music. Um, it channels just these extreme emotions. And when you're screaming at the top of your lungs and jumping up and down with your fellow fans, it's like that's catharsis. That's release. And it's a time where I think we want a lot of catharsis and release. Uh, and I do, you know, I, I honestly, I have not been to a concert since before the pandemic, but I have been very tempted, <laughs> especially when I saw The Cure was on tour. Uh, nostalgia is my whole thing, uh, as well as my desire to see artists before they're gone, because we've lost a lot of them way too young recently. I wonder if I really like that idea that you're saying like, OK, well, it's not just that it's a live event because there are other live events that are not doing so great. And that is true about theater and that idea that music, first of all, music is not really. But, it, it, you know, it, it, it is less political than a lot of things. Right. It, it's it is it is a feeling. Right. And I I don't know about you, but I find myself every day listening to podcasts and being incredibly depressed about the incredibly bad news about <laughs> Trump running again, and then the GOP House is doing something insane, and people are constantly, there's sort of seems this gnawing authoritarian creep in the country, and I'm like, it's nice to escape that sometimes. Do you think, is that what you mean by talking about, like, sort of the need to sort of find a, a really escape from that? Yeah, but I think also, you know, again, there's something about music that people tie their personal identities to. And I think in that way, it can be very political, but it's like you want to be in a room of very passionate people who are kind of 
aligned with you, I guess I want to say. And sometimes that's for better and sometimes that's for worse, as we've seen in in the news recently. Um, But yeah, I think it's just that extreme like community um, and just the feeling that like, if when I was growing up, it was more like less digital and more like you wore t-shirts or if you, if you like the cure, for instance, like you maybe went through a goth phase and it had to do with like your physical presence in a room and like the people you hung out with and all of those things. And I just think it's just more intrinsic to who you feel you are on the inside. I wonder if just thinking about, I mean, you're totally right that theater, for example, I mean, is really in trouble. Um, Right. And that's, you know, that's a community space. Also, just the accessibility of like theater is more expensive, Um, you know, as much as I. But you also don't get to dance around and scream and mosh pit at the theater. Yeah, you have to be silent. Yeah, (laughs) right. Like, right. Like music is. And yeah, yeah, just like music is an invitation. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Like music yeah. is an invitation of participation. Yeah. Like the barrier to entry is lower. It's actually a shorter time commitment. I mean, so if you wanted, for example, to listen to your favorite song on repeat, you could act- you could do it many, many times in a day and kind of make it a part of your identity in a way that, um, you know, I could, there are movies that I'm attached to in, in the same way I am to certain songs, but there's far fewer of them. And, you know, I, my Spotify subscription, maybe you guys got this notice too. Um, I have mixed feelings about subscribing to Spotify. It just got more expensive. And I'm like, the the artists are not getting that money. Um, And then also, but it, but it has made this huge catalog of music. Maybe it has broadly made more musicians more popular in other ways, even if they're not get anyway, like even if they're not getting paid in the, in the right way for their music. And so you're right that the joy... Yeah. yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, live music is really where artists are making their money, you know, like the streaming is pennies. It's it's not very much money uh, and the models are completely different, but the touring is still like can be very lucrative for an artist. And the other thing I want to say is like, I think often, you know, musicians are they're they're special as entertainers because I think that we hear the we hear the music, we listen to the lyrics, and we feel like we know that artist. It's not as if it's not like actors where you know they're playing a role and there's a distance between the that artist and and the audience. It's like being in a room with somebody very famous that you feel like is your best friend. And, and that is an experience that people are going to want to pay for. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. I like that. Um, and that makes sense for why, you know, the joy of this summer's concerts, I think, you know, Beyonce and Taylor Swift in particular, at least that's the conversation around here. You know, it feels really palpable, but... You know, as we've been talking about, artists are also vulnerable to objectification online and on stage. And there was a recent article in Cosmo UK in which a psychotherapist, Ella McChrystal, was quoted saying, violence against artists, including physical assault, is a reflection of broader societal issues such as gender-based violence, harassment, and lack of respect for personal boundaries. So we've been citing these recent examples of fan violence. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, the extent to which that sort of behavior has always been a part of the concert scene and, and whether it seems different to you today. 
Sure. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure what was happening in like the earliest days of rock and roll in, you know, little tiny juke joints and all that. But by certainly by 1969, um, there was violence and chaos on a very large and headline grabbing scale. And, you know, we're probably going to talk about the Altamont Free Concert and how that um, influenced um, the novel. But yeah, like along with the Manson murders, that was basically considered the end of like the love and peace hippie era. Uh, and then by the late 70s and 80s, of course, you have, you know, mosh pits. But, you know, that kind of thing, that scene, there are really unspoken rules to that. So what comes to mind for me when I was thinking about this question was actually like Woodstock 99. Um, and there are many documentaries and a ton of journalism about what went wrong there and how it wasn't just the aggression or the misogyny of the music or the lyrics, but the really the capitalist impulses of the organizers that really fueled the rage and the ugliness that happened there. Um, but I mean, one of the things that my novel is kind of putting forth is that things may come in slightly different packages, but they're the same. Like these are cyclical things. And until the underlying issues in the culture are properly addressed, we'll probably continue to see like some some ugliness um, in, in these scenes, as well as the beauty and the connection that we feel to the music, you know, because the art and the culture is always going to reflect the times. I, you know, I was thinking about remembering the summer that the Black Lives Matter protests happened. And that became a thing that was during COVID. And so that was the one outdoor thing that I went to. And those protests were important and like visceral, but also could be very joyful, like behind the lines, you know, right? If you're not right on the front of something that's happening, or if you're in a city like Kansas City that wasn't specifically protesting a murder, but having a general sort of, you know, protest. And I wonder if this is summer's like intensity and the sort of is is a is a different kind of channeling of the same impulses that were making people want to go to those protests at that time. I don't, does that sound like a crazy theory? Uh, no, not at all. I think I think that could be part of it. I mean, I think it's a time where people are feeling a lot of different things, and um, without possibly like a lot of ways to channel those feelings and I think or or those desires for joy um and I think concerts can provide that joy or um depending on the show you go to it can also like tap into some darker stuff mm -hmm. as well I mean I went to those yeah. also because I wanted to see and yell at the like Minutemen guys who were showing up as counter protesters I mean that I was very angry with them yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, catharsis, release, like, that's all part of it. The students brought up this idea, who, who's, whose idea it was to do this episode. So we have these student-based episodes at the end of the semester, and this is our summer semester. But they said that also they thought that social media might be one of the reasons that people are acting out more, more like graphically or broadly or attacking each other or doing stuff that's disruptive in the concerts because they're filming it and they want it to be on social media. Um, and I wondered yeah. if you thought that was an accurate observation. Uh, I think that social media can certainly be annoying sometimes. <laughs> I mean, even before uh, 2020, 
I remember going to shows and little clubs and there were so many phones in the air that it just completely obstructs the, the view of the stage. And I end up watching the show through people's phones, you know, and, and that is something that was very annoying. But I think that social media certainly adds like this new layer to the same old desire for mementos and flair. So in the analog days, I would save my ticket stubs and I would put them in my case logic CD books with the, the album. Oh my God. And do you remember this? Yes. And, or I would get a t-shirt or a poster at the merch table, but everything's digital now and the tools are super sophisticated. So you can zoom on your phone in a way that makes you look like you're right up by that stage. And then there's this whole idea of Pixar, it didn't happen. So it's like a kind of proving that you were there in the room with whoever you know, you're going to see. Um, and there's the potential that other fans and maybe even the artists themselves is going to like, like it or share it, you know. And so yeah, I can see a certain amount of jockeying and shoving and posturing to to get that to like feel as close as possible to it. Uh, I'm not familiar with specific instances of violence related to it. But yeah, I have certainly been annoyed by it. You're saying that just makes me think of all the times I've been at art galleries and have been watching people take photos of the art and then realize that I'm looking at their screen taking a photo of the art. Yeah. My own screen, taking a photo of the art instead of looking at the art itself. It's real um, trippy. So we mentioned <laughs> it's really strange. Um, and I, I can't even, I mean, I know that that's not the instinct I want to have. And yet sometimes that's the way my, my eyes go. Um, so we've mentioned gender-based violence, but I, of course, want to talk about race too. And you mentioned the 1969 Altamont Free Concert at which a black man named Meredith Hunter was murdered by members of Hell's Angels who were employed as security during the Rolling Stones set. Um, and the the writer Grill Marcus in, in 77 wrote about this and, and wrote, a young black man murdered in the midst of a white crowd by white thugs as white men played their version of black music was too much to kiss off as a mere unpleasantness. So just as context for our listeners, um, and of course you're one of the experts on this, Altamont was supposed to be the West Coast version of Woodstock, and more recently, Jason Aldean's Try That in a Small Town. That has been in the headlines recently and, and hit number two um, on the Billboard Top 100. And critics and listeners have been slamming the lyrics of that song for coded racism, um, a take with which, frankly, I agree with. So what role does race play in what we've termed this concert summer of love or hate? Yeah, you know, that's such a huge question. And, you know, I don't know that I'm going to try to answer it. I don't think I can answer it fully as it's still playing out because I, I like to kind of yeah. take a long view. But I'm just going to talk about Jason Aldean for a minute. Um, again, this idea that musicians are different from, say, actors and other entertainers um, because of the sense that the image you see or the lyrics you hear represent who that artist is. Um, and the music being more personal and tied to identity. And there tends to be zero distance there between the artist and the ethos of the lyric. And it's really complicated to blame music itself for behavior because songs are written material like anything else, they're protected art. But musicians are not stupid. Like they understand that lack of distance and that they're linking themselves to the mood and the content of those lyrics and that they're really trying to appeal to a certain audience. So, you know, yeah, I make an assumption about who Jason Aldean is based on that song. And no, my black ass is not going to a Jason Aldean concert because of it. And at the same time, that's really sad because um, one of the things that excites me about music today is that Black artists are breaking through in genres that have not been traditionally coded as 
quote-unquote, Black music. And that includes Jason Aldean's genre of country music. You know, there's a documentary about these artists called For Love and Country. There's a book by Francesca T. Royster. And it's just really ugly to see that at the same time that gates are coming down, there are some people who are just, like, clearly hell-bent on on putting them back up and keeping Black fans out. Um, So... Yeah, that's all, like, horrible. (laughs) I was thinking back to older songs that uh, serve as, like, sort of more right-wing... Dog whistles? Yeah, like Okie from Muskogee by Merle Haggard was, like, a a pro-Vietnam War song, or at least a support the soldiers song that came out. Was it in the 70s? I have to look it up, but um, let's see where... I actually have it called up right here. I'm going to check and see. came out in 69... Right, so mm-hmm. right in the heart of this time that we're actually talking about, uh, you know, when, when Altamont happened, right? That sort of was was contrary to the anti-war songs that were coming out of also the, the, a lot of artists were doing at that time. And I think of, of similar songs that came out during the Gulf War, uh, well, during the w- war with Iraq, right? Where you have sort of pro-war songs. There was a Bomb Iran song, <laughs> Bomb Iraq song. There was... There's yeah. the song that they play at the baseball games always. And then there's the one about, what is the one where we'll put a boot in your ass? It's the American way. Whose song, whose song is that? Mm, that is I a, that no is a right wing country music song that is played. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah. are there versions of the, of like sort of pro Trump, pro MAGA artists out there other than this Jason Aldean guy? I don't, I don't actually know his song by the way. Oh, I mean, I, you know, I, I haven't heard that song. I've read some of the lyrics. Um, there are certainly artists who are, you know, MAGA artists, I guess. I don't know if they're making music that at this point that ties directly to it, but Kid Rock, oh, yeah. uh, uh, Ted <laughs> Nugent, you yes, know, that's right. like, yeah. and these guys are like kind of, I don't know if they even have fans anymore at this point. Uh, but yeah, that is still out there. And again, they're stupid, but they're not. <laughs> like, they're definitely like, trying to appeal to something that is very um scary toby keith and by the way is the that's t- it's courtesy keith, of okay. the red white and blue yeah. right oh yeah. uh, uh-huh yeah yeah i mean one of the things that i was trying to address in in my novel you know i'm from jacksonville florida which is the hometown of leonard skinnard and that was really complicated for me um the sweet home alabama band <laughs> waving that confederate flag on everything um, being a, a black rock and roll music fan. And that's what my hometown was known for, you know? And and I modeled a band in, in the novel after Leonard Skinner for that reason and thinking about the music of the time and how the character Opal would kind of butt against that. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. That is a perfect segue to us talking about your book. Um, And, you know, a race ride at a concert set in 1971 drives the plot of your novel, The Final Revival of Opal and Nev, which focuses on the musical partnership of Opal Jewell, a black American singer, and Nev Charles, a white British guitarist. You write, media outlets, quote, media outlets frequently compared what happened at Rivington Showcase to the violence at 1969's Altamont Free Concert. So why don't you read to us from the book? 
I would love to. Thank you. Um, so just as a little setup, uh, my novel is a fictional oral history. And in the part I'm going to read, Opal is being interviewed in early 2016 uh, about the Rivington Showcase, which is a notorious 1971 concert that she and Nev played, and it erupts in violence. So this is Opal talking about the mood in the crowd before they came out and all hell broke loose. In terms of characters you need to know for this, Jimmy is the black drummer for the duo and also Opal's lover, and he has friction with Nev. Johnny and Saul are their other bandmates, and the boogeymen that Opal refers to are a white biker gang. Uh, so here we go. The weed plus adrenaline had me mellow and alert at the same time, like I could reason and focus on everything at once inside that crazy space with the red curtains all around but I could see through the crack in the curtain leading out to the stage, and there was my mic set up all pretty and waiting for me. I looked to my right, and there was my friend Nev, bursting into the wings, tall and skinny as an exclamation point, grinning and giving me the thums, thumbs up with his acoustic guitar strapped across his chest and that black eyeliner he'd scribbled on like war paint. And he ignored Jimmy and said in my ear, with the people in the balcony still pumping me up, do you hear that, my girl in gold? Are you ready to show them who we are? I don't even think I answered him. I didn't need to because my blood knew that it was time, showtime, and it was coming at me fast. Nev nodded and I nodded and the choice was made. I remember Nev saying cheers to Jimmy, holding his hand out to shake like, bye. I guess he assumed Jimmy was going to leave me alone, pull out of the set. But your daddy wouldn't shake Nev's hand. He told him real low to get out of his face with that bullshit, to never say boo to him again or he'd be picking himself up off the floor. I remember Jimmy turned his back to me then. I remember his hair puffing out the edge of his snap cap, his drumsticks in his jeans pocket. I can still see him standing strong on his own two feet, striding through the crack in the curtains past Johnny and Saul, sitting down at his kit. And then it was just me and Nev standing together in the wings. And without Jimmy there, suddenly I got a little nervous. And Nev wasn't much better. He'd gone wider than he already was, taking off his acoustic guitar, since the shared electric waited for him on stage. He was telling me it was going to be okay. Everything would work out in the end because this was our moment, and just listen to that crowd. Said it like he was convincing himself, too. I breathed in deep, thought about that noise like a wild wave to ride, and I stepped out just like we'd rehearsed, a few beats behind the band so I could have a moment to shine before Nev came out. My heartbeat was thudding as loud as my shoes across the floor of that stage, the biggest I'd ever been on. It seemed like all the other sound dropped out while I crossed the distance to my mark, right in front of Jimmy's kit. I planted my foot down on one side of my mic, boom. Then the other one, boom. I expected to feel the spotlight hot on my skin, but we had come out so quick, I guess it took a minute for whatever poor child was at the controls to catch up to what was going on. So without the lights blinding me, I could see very clearly the people in the audience. I could see these boogeymen in the front row with their wind-burned faces and their hands circling their mouths. I could see one scratching himself like a damn monkey and the other one making that filthy gesture with its tongue between two fingers. Saul and Johnny started up with a little intro music, warming up, and then Nev, jo and then Nev jocked out. How he was supposed to announce him, you know, ladies and gentlemen, Neville Charles, but obviously that didn't happen. Then the lights cut on and the people whited out, and in their place all the noise rushed back in. I could pick out the booing down at my feet, yeah, but up above in my cheering section, they were loving me in a way I had never been loved before. And when I raised a fist, they cheered louder and that rush of energy just, it boosted me to a different frequency. Behind me, I heard Jimmy start the count for yellow belly. 
He kicked in with the beat double time, either trying to rush us off or mess us up, I don't know. But the other guys were too good, and they sped up perfect to match him. We had that protopunk thing going, you know. Neb's fingers were flying across the string, struggling to keep up, but right when it was time for him to charge in with the verse, he didn't miss. And I thought, hey, Jimmy was wrong. Nev was the real deal, a talent worth taking a gamble on. I thought, this is it, this is it. My confidence just soaring, go, go, go. I kept pumping my fist up to the balcony and swiveling my hips side to side and shaking my head with the beat so that my wig was flying around, the ends of it slapping me in the face, strands getting stuck in my lipstick. It was getting real good to me. And then the vibe changed. Thank you so much. Thanks. That passage is, I feel like, just captures so much of what you've been saying. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I picked that passage and I intentionally stopped at a point that leaves our listeners at a bit of a cliffhanger if they haven't <laughs> yes. read the book. And um, I wonder if you could talk about inventing the Rivington Showcase as a pivotal point in your book and how you thought about writing both the excitement of the music and the violence, what elements you felt you needed to include. Yeah, so um, it's funny. Rivington Showcase was sort of uh, came out of the most skeptical and evidence-based pieces of my imagination. And I say that because, um, you know, I've always described Opal, um, the Black woman rock star who's at the center of this book, as the kind of rock star that I would have idolized as a young girl. So for me, she's an amalgamation of Betty Davis, Nona Hendrix, Grace Jones, Nina Simone. But as a Black Gen X fan of like alternative music, indie music, 120 minutes, all those things, um, I wanted to place Opal as a foremother of some of the punk and indie and post-punk stuff that I loved the best. So I wanted to make her larger than life, but I also wanted to make her feel real. And so the showcase um, for me was kind of like my asking myself, do I believe that the industry would have allowed for a black woman coded as a rock and roll star to get that big? And the answer to that question was unfortunately no. And so I felt like I needed to make her more than famous, I needed to make her a little notorious. And for me, that was putting her at the forefront of this kind of tragic headline grabbing news event. Um, and, you know, for me, that was how she, for a very brief moment, is allowed to kind of like slip through. Um, but she's also, it's an event for me in the book that sort of like marks her. Like, she's constantly living with the legacy of what happens at Rivington Showcase. Um, and it affects everything. It cements her image. She's never allowed to change her image. Um, and so that's why, you know, the things that happen at the showcase happen there. Um, and, you know, again, with I wanted to sort of reflect that year, 1971, where there were a lot of really exciting and diverse things happening in music, but also, um, you know, you had Laurel Canyon in California, you had, it was like a few years before, like, punk, 
Um, you had all these like things like just on the verge, but also, you know, you had Southern rock and I wanted to imagine one room where all these genres, all these different artists on this label that is really flailing and trying to throw spaghetti against the wall, like just trying to see whatever hits, you know, all these fan bases, putting them in one space, in one theater in New York city. And and that was Remington showcase for me. Okay. We're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. In an earlier passage, uh, Opla Never recording their first album, Polychrome, and Jimmy and Opla are the only two black musicians in the group, and they nix this song, Black Coffee, because Nev tries to represent blackness and doesn't do a good job, and Jimmy calls the song Tone Deaf to the Times. But it's interesting to have a band, in, 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 similar to what you're saying on this record, they to have a band in which there's creative collaborations between black and, and non-black musicians yeah. today. What's How do you see that happening? How's that going in the current musical world yeah in terms of like uh the number of collaborations it's not that i think that there are more creative collaborations today it's just that the power dynamics are different and are more favorable to to black artists than they have been in the past like i don't think today for instance you'd have a song like give me shelter by the rolling stones and nobody knows who mary clayton is like that would not happen like today. At least I, I, I really don't point. think that it would happen. So, you know, it's a, it's a bit more egalitarian. Of course, there are a whole other separate issues about like compensation and streaming and, and all these things. But I think, you know, like there are always exciting things happening um, when people of different backgrounds are coming together to make art. So they're still like very exciting and, and great things that are being done today. But um, in terms of the exposure, the um, the level of fame, you know, it's, it's better. I had two questions that related to that. Like, first of all, is Black Coffee a reference to this Rolling Stones brown sugar? <laughs> I didn't think of it that way, but uh, <laughs> there's actually a song. I forget the name of the band, but there was a song in the 1970s called Black Coffee by a white British band that partnered with three black women background singers. <laughs> oh, And I didn't find that out until later, but... Um, yeah, it's a, it was a whole thing in, in the 1970s, you know, when these British white rock bands wanted to add an element of soul uh, or power to their music. They often looked to black women who, you know, had sung in church gospel music and to bring that sound into it. So it's something that happened all the time. You know, interracial collaborations, of course, happened in jazz all the time. Um, There's also that song so, Black Coffee in Bed. Well, now, what is that? That was from my era, and we were just playing it the other day, and I forgot the name of the band. Do you guys know Black oh, Coffee in Bed? I, I, don't, I don't know, know that one. Okay. No. All right, I'll have to look that up. Send me send me the song later. All right, all right. I'm not going <laughs> to sing it now. Uh, so. <laughs> oh, wait, this seems like a missed opportunity, Whitney. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's a very good song. Everyone knows this. All right, hold on. I'm looking it up right now. Uh, black coffee table no that's not it <laughs> while you're doing that i want to go back for squeeze. a second to kind of the um uh, i'm sorry what year is it uh when did that come out 82 
Ah. I mean, mm-hmm. the other thing that I was going to say is like, it seems to me that maybe, hopefully, that, you know, collaborations from uh, uh, between identities, between racial identities, don't have to be message songs like the infamous Ebony and oh, Ivory, totally. you know, song of our my youth, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm thinking about, um, oh gosh, there's that song, what is it called? Um, that had Janelle Monet on it. That was just like a vibe. Tonight we are young. And that was just like, it felt like a generational like anthem. Like, and it has nothing to do. It was just like, you know, a great song that was very huge. <laughs> Janelle Monet is from Kansas City, Kansas. So we, we like to claim her. Really. Ah, love her. Amazing. She's so incredible. I feel like so one of the great joys of reading your book is to kind of like do what Whitney just did, like kind of sift through the incredible catalog, the fictional catalog and try and make these connections to the real things. And, you know, I've read your book like maybe two or three times now, and I feel like every time I find more stuff and and researching this episode in particular felt like I found things that were uh, quote unquote real that I hadn't known before. And like when you're talking about Rivington Showcase and maybe just the novel at large, when you're like, that's like what you're describing there is like a plot problem. And then also kind of, um, I don't know, almost music as props. And Mm. I wonder, like, did you, did you start with like the, the answer you gave us was so coherent. And I mean, I kind of know this feeling of like, you come up with a coherent answer later. And at least in my case, the actual (laughs) process is like wildly incoherent. I just like, did Rivington showcase and, and I don't know, this catalog of songs and like fictional collaborations, et cetera, how, like how close to what you ended up with was what you started with? Pretty close, weirdly. Pretty close. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tell no, us the I, secret. My God. Uh, I think it was just something, you know, as I say with most debuts, like I think you kind of carry that book around with you in your head for a really long time before you get the nerve to like sit down and do it, you know? Um, so I think it was partly that and... I really wanted to make the book and the world of the book feel real, you know, because I was sort of following that edict. I think Toni Morrison said it, you know, if there's a book that hasn't been written and like, and it doesn't exist, like you have to be the one to write it. And that for me was how I felt about the book and about Opal especially. And I just wanted to make it, I wanted to make people believe that she could have been real, that this could have happened. And so like all the things that happened, it was like working out a puzzle in my head. And like, I didn't really write anything until I had it straight. And until I could convince myself, honestly. That's so interesting, because I feel like I have to work that out on the page. And which means like, just an endless number of drafts. But you, of course, you know, as we mentioned, you were a journalist, and a novelist. And so you have this also this enormous expertise built up. And the book is told from the point of view of Sunny, a black woman magazine editor whose journalistic take is, is sometimes kind of brushed aside. She has a personal connection to Opal's story, which which she insists, you know, she's insisting the story is important. Opal's story is important. Opal's an important figure. But but other people, sometimes including her own staff, they kind of are yeah. looking askance at her when she talks about this. And I wonder if you could just talk about writing Sunny and, and maybe with just your take on how journalism is doing and in, in covering the kind of dynamics that we've been talking about. Yeah, so so this is really interesting. Now, Sunny was the piece of the book that I did not see until I was maybe two thirds of a draft through. It was just a straight interview, straight oral history. And then, Sugi, this is where you come in. 
So my first semester at Iowa, you were my workshop teacher. And uh, I think in that very first time that I workshopped this novel, like ever, ever, um, everyone in the class said, you know, we really like this, but who are they talking to? Who's on the other side of the recorder? And I thought that was such a fascinating question to really think about that and challenge myself. And I went in to meet with you and to talk to you about this idea that I had about Sonny, who would be a magazine editor, um, who is, and this is not a spoiler, it's the first sentence of the book, who is the daughter of Jimmy, the drummer, who is killed in the Rivington Showcase. And um, her mother was pregnant with her at the time of the showcase, so she never got a chance to meet her father. And I felt it added so many complications and would turn it into, you know, a history, but also a bit of an investigative piece about her father and what happened to him exactly. Um, and... Yeah, so she was a character that unlocked so much for this novel because with her existence also came the whole 2016 timeline and this idea of Opal and Nev reuniting with the 2016 election as the backdrop. So um, having Sunny as a character was, was so wonderful. And I think, you know, my journalism background, I think really, of course, like informed Sunny. Some of those painful meetings that I write about that she's in, I remember being in meetings like that, um, where, you know, often like a Black editor is questioned about their knowledge or their expertise or whether their ideas are really going to work. All those frustrations and microaggressions are definitely in the book. And writing a journalist character also allowed me to write the oral history sections because I just thought like a journalist. I thought, who do in my dream world, if I could make people behave the way that I want, as I can do as the god of my novel, who do I want to hear from in, in this moment? And so when I needed some levity, I could tap Virgil, who is Opal's stylist and, and sort of one of the funnier characters in the book. Um, if I needed someone to say outra something outrageous, I would tap Howie, who's the label owner. Um, and so it really kind of helps me in, in the writing to have that character. Donnie, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Um, and listeners, be sure to pick up a copy of the final revival of Opal and Nev at your local bookstore. And we'll go out on some music. So as you say goodbye, why don't you tell us one song <laughs> that you listened to while you were working on the book? Oh, well, I worked on the book. Um, so uh, Betty Davis, dedicated to the press. Extra, extra, do you understand me well? If you don't, don't you reprimand me well? I wish I could tell it to you another way. Awesome. Tom, thank you so much. Yes. <laughs> thank y'all. This is great. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. 
You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!